Hello and welcome to Food for Thought, a podcast exploring the future of Australian agriculture. My name's Damien Morgan, I'm your host, and for each episode of Food for Thought, I'll be interviewing a leader, an innovator, or an entrepreneur, people with big ideas for the big challenges and opportunities that lie ahead for Australian farmers. Demand for food is expected to double in the next 30 years. The global population is predicted to hit 9 billion by 2050. It's 7.5 billion now. It was less than 1 billion in the year 1800. There's no more land or water to access, so what changes are needed? What opportunities will come? Will Australia lead or follow? It's all food for thought, and it's exactly what we explore on this podcast. In this episode, I speak with Aussie icon Dick Smith. If I was a family farmer, I'd do exactly what I did when I was young. I'd buy the cheapest air ticket around the world and I'd go and just copy the best from everyone else. And everywhere you'll pick up an idea and that's what I did. And I just took the best ideas, brought them back to Australia before everyone else and made a fortune. Dick Smith. Dick is one of Australia's most recognisable faces. He founded and later sold what was then the booming Dick Smith electronics business. He's been outstandingly successful in business and in more recent years as a philanthropist and an activist. He was Australian of the Year in 1986. I travelled to his home in the outer suburbs of Sydney and spent a pretty amazing morning with Dick at his office and in his helicopter hangar, interviewing him amongst his incredible photographs of the many global aviation adventures that he's had and amongst the artefacts from his business career he has lived such a very large life he's always been someone who'll call a spade a spade and that's exactly what happened when I interviewed him and I think for farmers especially he offered some interesting insights into how he views the future of agriculture he's very positive about agriculture despite the many challenges that the world faces and agriculture faces. He talks about how if he was starting out again in business, he'd be in farming and food and not necessarily electronics. He sees huge potential for selling the clean, green Aussie product to the world. I hope you enjoy the interview. Aussie icon, Dick Smith. Dick Smith, welcome to Food for Thought. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. I note you're fresh from a bushwalk, straight out of the, the bush. Yes, I live on the northern Sydney suburbs in Terry Hills and we have Karingai Chase National Park and so I get out there as much as I can. I love walking. Well, you've obviously got an enormous amount of energy. I know people listening to this across all the far-flung parts of Australia, whether they're driving a tractor or or, uh, in a ute or in a car doing highway miles, will know you as a businessman, they'll know you as a philanthropist, they'll know you as an adventurer uh, and now somewhat of a political activist, which we're going to talk about, but where does the energy come from? Oh, look, I think I've always had it. As a kid, I was hopeless at school, and uh, really my only qualification, I'm a car radio installer, but I think my parents were pretty sort of get-up-and-go people, and then I spent a lot of time in the Boy Scouts. That's where I learnt my leadership abilities. And uh, I suppose I'm enthusiastic about this country. I mean, why wouldn't I be? I've done well. Uh, I, I remember my parents, it appears, used to say to each other, whatever will happen to Dick, because I was so bloody hopeless. Uh, in fifth class at Roseville Public School, I came 45th out of 47, 
They were big classes in those days. So I'm more surprised than anyone that I did okay, and that's probably why I've got a bit of enthusiasm. Well, let's talk, just talk a little bit about the business career. So, so Dick Smith Electronics obviously was where it all started. So how did you go from being you know, not a great student to being one of the greatest entrepreneurs? Look, I was very lucky I, I could fix radios. I was a ham radio operator, and uh, I could fix radios. And so I started a small business fixing Manly Cab 2A radios. And one day I went into the city of Sydney to a company called George Browns and they sold electronic components and they were really slack and I thought gee if I started a business selling electronic components I could do well and that's what I did well and I think by the age of 37 I'd sold out to Woolworths for about 25 million dollars so I I was sort of very lucky and made a lot of money when I was quite young. And Australian Geographic but the the adventuring stuff looking through your photographs here the, you've been all over the world you've done some incredible yeah, I've been very lucky I've done five flights around the world um, two of them solo and uh, I'm still alive which is amazing because uh, quite a bit of risk involved especially in the little helicopter flight I it was the time of the cold war and you couldn't land in Russia so I had to land on a ship between Japan and Alaska and the problem was finding the ship and it was before GPS and that was difficult. But I'm, yeah, I'm very lucky to be alive. Maybe that's why I'm also so positive and enthusiastic. And so many of the people listening to this will be farmers or in the regions, and, uh, and they love you uh, for many things, but Dick Smith Food. So that stance you took um, you know, for keeping Australian ownership and things like that. So that was a big passion for you. I imagine it still is, but that was something that really emerged and you and you were very aggressive on. And so, I mean, in many ways, Dick Smith Foods was activism and you, you're doing more and more of that now. You've written Dick Smith, Fair Go, the manifesto there. Um, so, which is, and a big theme of that is population, which is what we want to talk about today in a large part. Food for Thought is broadly about this booming global population. Um, how do we feed an extra 2 billion people? So just to set it up, I know you know this, but I might just for our audience just go through some numbers around global population growth. So we hit on Earth 1 billion people for the first time in 1804. So depending on your view of humanity, you know, thousands of years at least getting to 1 billion. The next billion we added in 123 years. So in 1927, we hit 2 billion in 1960. 33 years later, we hit 3 billion. Then it was 14 years later, we hit 4 billion. We're at 7.3 now, um, headed for somewhere in the vicinity of 9 billion plus. No, we're actually heading for 11 billion. See, one thing, if you look back, every prediction is always way under. It's always a con, and only about 20 years ago we were predicting that we'd be at 25 million by 2050. Well, we're now there. So what the so-called demographers always do is under-predict. I think there's a bit of... They're doing that for good reasons. They don't want to frighten people. So you, you plot that on a graph... And, you know, it's almost going up vertically, isn't it? It looks, it looks like a... Yeah, a, a if anyone point. looks at a graph of population growth, it does go vertical, and normally a vertical graph, in fact, always means a crash. So there's going to be an enormous collapse, I can tell you, that without any doubt, our economic system at the moment is the type of Ponzi scheme. So the reason the politicians constantly spruik growth, they actually don't tell the truth. It's perpetual growth, and that's impossible. It's a finite world, and... This is something I've never told anyone before because I only just heard it a week ago. A senior bureaucrat from Canberra said to me, he's quite close to Treasury, he said, Dick, you're absolutely right. He said, 
they know it's a Ponzi scheme and it's going to collapse. But everyone knows if you just keep feeding it with more population, you'll delay the collapse. And so that's really terrible that we don't have a leader who's prepared to stand up and say, look, we're into a Ponzi scheme. How do you solve Ponzi schemes? Well, you stop putting money into them for a start. You tell everyone what's going on and then you minimise the risk. But that's not happening. So the, how do you separate glo the global population from Australia? So controlling Australian population is one challenge, which yeah. we'll get to, but the global population, most of the growth is coming from poorer countries? Absolutely. Uh, the growth in poorer countries, southern Sudan, is 2.8%. It doubles its population every 20 years, and it's incredibly poor to start with. The refugee camps have got incredible population increase. What we should be doing is concentrating our overseas aid on educating women, and helping with family planning and contraceptives. We should get to a stage, we, we need to get to a stage where every child that's born is a wanted child. And it's interesting, in Australia, Aussie families can have 20 kids. Now, there were times years ago when they'd have 10 or 12 kids, yeah. but now it's an average of about two. That's because Aussie families are sensible. They decide on the number of children they can have that they can give a good life to. Pretty sensible. The problem is we have no equivalent plan for the country. It's just endless perpetual growth, and it will completely destroy Australia as we know it today if we allow it to continue. So, so with regard to controlling Australia's population, it's not natural growth, so it's not natural increase, yep. it is immigration, is, yes. is a big driver yeah, of the growth. We, we have no problems in, in doing something about our own growth because, as you mentioned, it's primarily coming from immigration. For people who are listening, the average long-term immigration is about 70,000 a year under Paul Keating it was 70,000 a year. John Howard increased it dramatically to 200,000 a year because it looks as if you've got growth, it looks as if you're doing better but per head, you're actually going backwards. So he's a very astute politician, John Howard, and that's what we're into now. Immigration about 220,000 a year, which is going to take our population at the present growth rate to 100 million at the end of this century, when my grandchildren will still be alive. Now, not many people think 100 million is a sensible number for Australia. And so the flip side of the argument, what, what do you say to people who say, well, we're, nearly, we're near full employment, we, we need people to work in, pick the fruit, to work in yeah. the abattoirs, to care for the elderly in remote regions. Where do the people come from for those jobs? Oh, well, first of all, um, I don't... I, I think we could have a billion people in Australia. You know, we're incredibly astute. If we get everyone like battery chooks in high-rise, 200-storey high-rise, and you have conveyor belts with laser diodes growing the food, you use every bit of uranium we've got to desalinate water, without that we can have a billion people. But why would you do that? Because the wealthy will be, un they'll be trillionaires and we'll probably have a few hundred million really poor, like other places. Now, as I said, we're going for 100 million. That's possible, but once again, we'll have a very small number of incredibly wealthy people, which we have now, and then probably 30 to 40 million of that 100 million will be like America. They'll be incredibly poor. They'll probably never have a job. In America, with a population of 300 million, there's a country that's gone past the sweet point, they have 50 million on food stamps, in effect on social services. The minimum wage in America is $7.10 an hour. It's less than half hours. Why? Mainly because you've got to share the wealth, and it's the wealthiest country on earth, you've got to share that wealth with so many people. And anyone knows, have four kids, and when you die, you can give them a quarter of your wealth, if you want to. Have two kids, you can give them half. Yeah. It's pretty simple. If you had 20 kids, that would be a disaster. 
So farmers, graziers particularly, understand the concept of carrying capacity for yeah. your land. This is how many sheep, this is how many cattle we can sustainably run. Factoring in seasons are unpredictable. So the notion of having a carrying capacity for Australia, a population that's sustainable, do you have a number or a ballpark? Well, now here's the problem. See, it depends on if you wanted to have a carrying capacity of people being wealthy and well off, the carrying capacity is probably about 8 million, right? But as I mentioned, you can go to 100 million maybe even a billion, but with a lot of poor people, because we're so ingenious. And anyone who's ever predicted a number in the past has been wrong. Paul Ehrlich, uh, who wrote, the, I think it was called The Population Bomb, in the 1960s he predicted people would be starving in the West in the 1980s. Now he was wrong because of fertiliser and productivity of farms and all of that. But one thing anyone listening on the tractor today knows, it's very simple, you cannot have perpetual growth in a finite system. It's impossible. And our economic system requires perpetual growth. And that's the problem. So someone one day has to adjust the economic system. But in the short term, as we grow to that limit, things are going to be good, I think, for people who grow food. Because if you have more people, obviously you need more food. So let's look at that. Um, so as this, the population to some degree, uh, once, not, we're not saying it's out of our hands at all, but it, 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 what will happen will happen. Let's assume there's going to be continuing growth to some degree. No, I'm, so I won't assume that. We are totally, this is really important too, because when you interview one of the business community, he will make out, he or she will make out that perpetual growth, that the type of growth we have is inevitable. That's not true. It's, we are completely in charge. And already Tony Abbott is talking about bringing it down to 100,000. We have to get a major political party. Otherwise, Pauline Hanson people will be elected because she has a policy of bringing the immigration down to about 80,000 a year, the long-term average. We need to get a major political party saying you cannot, you cannot have endless growth in population and we need to stabilise the population now. If we bring the immigration down to about 80,000 a year, which is very high by world standards per capita, we'll stabilise the population under 30 million. And we should be doing that immediately. So we're totally in charge. Those who want growth, what you say to them is, oh, well, when we have a trillion, trillion people in Sydney, will that be too many? Then they have to stop and give you a bit of a nervous laugh and say, oh, I see what you're getting at. We will have to limit growth one day. But what they mean, they're so bloody selfish, and that's the business community and the major politicians. They're so selfish. What they say is, we'll let a future generation solve that problem. Our children or our grandchildren will have to solve that problem. That's outrageous. No, we should be working on it now. So, point made. Um, looking at the, the food production demands, uh, not just Australia, but we're a big export country of food. So uh, if we look at feeding a, a, a global population... What changes need to happen, in your view, in our food systems and our farming systems to do that sustainably? Well, obviously, you know, so we're so ingenious with automation. And one of the problems we've got at the moment in, in Australia is this enormous population increase to 100 million at the present rate. By the way, the demographers say, oh, I'm wrong. It's not going to be 100 million. What they mean is the growth rate has to stop. They're very cunning, see? Oh, you mean to say for future generations stops the growth. But I can tell you simple mathematics, 1.6%, the current growth rate, means 100 million at the end of this century. So it's that staggering number. Now, what can we do about it? Well, first of all, you've mentioned, and, and it's clear that farmers generally are going to benefit. One of the problems I see is actually employing people because 
you mentioned shortage of getting labour in country areas and so forth. That's not a shortage of available labour. We have 14% youth unemployment in Australia today. When I was a kid, it was about 3%. And underemployment, it's over 20% for young people who can't get a full-time job. Also, I noticed, I was watching Catalyst a couple of weeks ago, uh, they're inventing automation for farms, and that'll be for picking and growing and, and fertiliser and everything. It will be more and more automated. The tractors are going to get bigger, and then the tractors won't have anyone on them. The farmer or the grazier or the, more to the point, someone who's planting a crop at the moment, listening to this, it's probably in future will be sitting back uh, in the homestead and uh, pushing a button and the tractor will do the whole lot and they'll go out and reset it every now and then. And so what that means is that actually you don't need more people. In fact, just about every problem we have on this earth today is made worse with more people. So we need less people. So in the country, I think what we're going to find is more and more automation because we're ingenious creatures and farmers are going to be offered automation to reduce labour costs and employing people is always a problem. So more and more automation. On the positive side for farmers, I've always been trying to invest in primary industry. It's really hard. I mean, I'm in Australian agriculture at the moment, but the, the company, AA, yeah, but okay. doesn't seem to be making much money. And, uh, but my, I tell my friends, the country's going to come good again. I said, when I, when I was a kid in the 1950s, our relatives all came from the Mudgee area, and they were all wealthy, and city people were poor, generally. And uh, I think wool was a pound a pound and all the rest of it. Well, my belief it's going to go back to that because as we get this enormous population increase going from 7 to 11 billion, and as people raise their standard of living, we're going to need more and more food. And so I see a smart farmer is going to do well. And so that seems to me, so ag's never been so sexy in financial services. All of a sudden, they're not the, you know, for this, that period of time between pound for a pound and, and now perhaps it was in a, sort of a daggy asset class with no reliability, but now there's institutional money and uh, foreign money uh, wanting to get involved in Australian agriculture. So what about this question between quality and quantity? So producing staples to feed people, to keep people alive is not possibly that difficult yeah. to do. But Australia does have a reputation of being clean and green and premium. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's potential there, but there's a lesson with Dick Smith Foods because we're really battling. We did $80 million turnover many years ago. We now do about $20 million. And one of the reasons is that most Aussies just buy the cheapest food. And the reason for that is all of our food is damn good quality. We have such high standards. And so if you go into Aldi, the German-owned Aldi, and buy the absolute cheapest jam, which is about half the price of a quality jam that, say, Dick Smith Foods sell, it's still a good jam. It's as simple as that. But I'll tell you where there's potential for Australia, and that certainly is in the countries where the food standard and quality is low, and developing countries are like that. So we're going to have this incredible potential of selling our quality food. And if I was involved in agriculture, I would be upping the quality and the marketing. Not You'll never win on price. Uh, South America, is, that's where the peanuts are coming for, have been coming in the past for craft because they're cheaper than Kingaroy peanuts. So I'd be concentrating on the quality. Whilst that doesn't seem to work a lot with Australians, it certainly will work with exporting because if you're in China, you want 
a quality China, Australian product rather than something from coming from a country where you can't see more than two to three kilometres in the pollution. So, so the, and they're decision points, aren't they, for farmers, uh, you know, to, to look at investing in things like traceability and being able to say where this animal, where this, where this food came from so that it give peace of mind. And there's some reluctance in some quarters to invest in that because, hey, it's just food. But th- that argument would say, if you follow that argument through, it would make sense to invest more and more in being a premium and differentiating from the pack. I would think so, yeah. And... Even though I'm saying in one case that Dick Smith Foods has failed, even though we've gone for higher quality, and people will stop me in the street, oh, Dick, we support you, Dick Smith Foods. But when you're actually in the supermarket and you're in a hurry, you're not feeling that patriotic. You just want to buy the food and get out. And you tend to buy the discounted products, the specials. And our specials are never as good because we have Australian labour content. I'm really glad that we share the wealth here. I'm glad that our minimum wage is double that of America. Now, some farmers mightn't be glad, but isn't it fantastic that we can share the wealth and we're an incredibly successful country? So my suggestion would be, if I was on the land or if I was involved in food processing, is generally to go up market and be looking at the export market who will value that. One day someone will have the really good marketing ability to develop a few brands like New Zealand has, which are just obviously better Australian quality. And then you'll get the people who buy the BMW and the Mercedes, and there's plenty of those, who will buy the higher quality food and be proud to pay more for it. And so that, 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 I mean, the, the farmer's lament for many years was, you know, these consumers will go and buy the cheapest carrots and so shop around to find the cheapest food that actually sustains their life and then go and invest those savings on a luxury item like, a, you know, a car or a piece of electronics yeah. that, you know, they would argue perhaps they don't need. So... That conversation is starting to change. If we look at the wine industry, people drop ridiculous amounts of money on some premium bottles of wine. And even now in, in beef, we're seeing some brands of beef yes. where people will pay you know, staggering numbers for a steak. So do you think that will continue? Yeah, I think it'll go on. Um, I, I think you know, there's no doubt there's a lot of wealthy people around and, and you can certainly benefit from those people. And we, are, we grow the best food on earth. And you know, I was criticised, and I was supporting Aussie farmers. Uh, these journalists would come out and say, ah, Dick Smith imported his electronics from, from Asia. Well, I did because, in fact, I started Dick Smith Electronics fixing the taxi radios and manufacturing electronics as we did back in 1968. And it was only when Gough Whitlam took the duty off everything, I knew I'd either go broke or have to import. But in hindsight, I support what he did because countries should do what they're good at. And Asia makes the best electronics. It's always going to do that. The Swiss make the best watches. And who grows the best food in the world? Undoubtedly, Australia and New Zealand. And so that's what we should be pushing. And that was the idea of Dick Smith Foods. If I was not 74, if I was 34, I'd start off an export food company and, and start a premium sort of a Gucci of food and sell it all around the world. And the potential would be staggering for the rising middle class in China and for the wealthy in the rest of the world to buy this premium Australian food. Do I notice you're writing down a note? You're probably going to do it. Yeah, that's it. it. That's that's note to sell. Anyone who's listening, there's great potential to do that. And I often look and think, wow, I wish I was 34. Um, I want to talk about our ability to produce food and water. So if anyone has done it, and I have, I, many years ago I did a road trip landing from lo, lo, in Los Angeles to Vegas, then up through the middle of America. And, and as a kid growing, driving from Brisbane West, yeah. there's 
you know, an hour and a half's drive where you've got premium agriculture around you and you're looking at crops and then it gets dry and then it gets very yes. dry. Now, you brought out, you, by the way, you brought out a really good point and that's why America can have 300 million people and people say we can have the same. America has the Rocky Mountain Range. That goes up to 14,000 feet. That gives the Mississippi River and the Colorado River and their other rivers that go with it. That's the complete difference between yes. our two countries. And, in fact, one dreamer came up with the idea of building an equivalent to the Rocky Mountain Range at Alice Springs, putting these huge factories up that were supposed to get high enough, 16,000 feet, to stop the airflow for the water to drop. But because we don't have a Colorado or a Mississippi River system, we are always going to be an arid country. So we'll never have that capacity, I don't believe. But we still can improve the productivity dramatically. Also, with climate change, I believe that climate change is happening and what I don't know and I don't think anyone knows is who's going to benefit and some people are telling me oh there'll be a lot more moisture in the air because the temperature's hotter so places like Queensland will get more rain now there's some good soils up there in Queensland in the more arid areas surely they're going to boom if that's what happens but we don't luckily we've got a huge change of latitude from Tasmania to Cape York and so we're probably going to lose out somewhere and benefit somewhere else we're indeed fortunate so, so just on this point of water, so again in the States, as you've made the point, if you drive, you know, you've got an hour and a half of, of, of drive uh, through uh, from east, east to west in Australia where you're looking at beautiful food consuming, uh, food producing land, you drive for three weeks through the Midwest and, and it's exactly the same. Yeah. So, and it's water. So in, in the Mississippi, in the middle of that continent is, it's you know, huge. huge. So what of this argument to capture water, to, to build more dams, to, you know, try to... Yeah, I think it's dream world, but, but gee, I've got to be careful saying this. Um, it, we, we all know that Bradfield of the Harbour Bridge had this plan of diverting the rivers and so forth. One of the problems is that they are so intermittent. See, the rains mainly, especially the ones that go into the Lake Air Basin when Cooper Creek comes down, the Diamantina, that's monsoonal rain. And we're not quite sure what's happening as the climate's getting warmer and warmer. We're going to get more or less. Nobody really knows right at the moment. But nothing replaces that huge mountain range of the Rockies that we'll never have. And I don't think that by putting more dams you can do token changes. But to me, with the idea, and I've read about it a lot, that those rivers that flow into the Gulf of Carpentaria, that we divert them and bring the water down south... I have a feeling it would either all evaporate before it got here or the cost of pumping it in pipes would be so staggering that it would be higher than competitive countries and so you wouldn't compete. What about infrastructure? So um, lots of our grains, for example, are grown five, lands in, five hours inland from port um, and you know up to 30% of the cost of the product is then actually getting it to the consumer, yeah. so rail. Um, you know, well, we're, we're, I like the idea of governments doing mad things. Look... The, uh, first of all, I love trains, but I think it was John Howard who funded the link between Alice Springs and Darwin. And if you did that on a straight business case, this is the rail link, I don't think you could ever, it would ever come out, but I'm really glad we've got it. Uh, for a start, in the case of a war or security, it's really important. And so I support the idea of this inland rail link, but I, I think people are going to be kidding themselves to say it's actually going to pay it's sort of like, you know, it's, it will pay in the long term, but in the short term, no one, I don't think anyone's going to get a return on it, other than probably by selling, selling the land close to it. But I, I totally support it because, for a start, rail is the way of transferring heavy goods around. And 
What I think we should be doing, instead of having this enormous population growth, so you've got the industry building more and more houses, I'd rather, and, and a house is not productive, it doesn't produce anything, I'd rather we employ our people by putting in more rail, more infrastructure, the type of things you're talking about, because it's going to benefit future generations and it reduces costs now. So that would be, when I'm dictator, that's the type yeah. of thing I'll be doing. Well, but doesn't, time frames, isn't that what government at its best does? If, if Surely the case can be made for inland rail. If, if, we're, if we're collecting grain in Gundawindi, let's say, in tens of thousands of tonnes, and it's shipping out of Brisbane uh, in tens of thousands of tonnes, and yet between those two points it's going in 50-tonne trucks, it, it, it just seems like the biggest bottleneck. Yeah, the, but the problem is that the then you have a number of years where there's hardly any grain, and so someone has to maintain the rail line infrastructure. That's expensive. And also, trucks are damn cheap. I mean, you only have to look on our highways. I love trains, and I, when I fly by my helicopter down to my farm, I always follow the railway line. There's hardly any trains on our railway lines, but there's lots of trucks, and that's because it's just so convenient and so cheap, and people don't believe in cross-subsidising these days. Um, I, I think I'd do a bit of cross-subsidising and say, no, let's use the rail better. First of all, it's going to make the roads safer and better for people who drive on them. Yeah. And what about free trade? Where do we, what's your view? Do we win or lose? I think we've, we've won, but I t tend to agree with a bit of what Mr Trump is saying, that we might have gone too far. And look, without any doubt, the taking away the trade barriers have benefited. First of all, they've allowed uh, developing countries to raise their standard of living dramatically. And you have to do that or you'll have war. I mean, so there's no problem in doing that. Uh, whether we've gone too far, and... I benefited dramatically out of free trade. It's the reason I'm wealthy. It was because Gough Whitlam took away the duty on electronic parts. And all of those little electronic manufacturers, which I was one of, had to move into something else, i.e. importing or doing value-added work and that type of thing. I moved into retailing and did very well out of it. Now, if Gough Whitlam hadn't reduced the duty, if we'd kept the trade barriers... Wow, I mean, TV sets would cost two or $3,000. I don't know how important that is, but a lot of things would be a lot more expensive and we would be the one country standing out. Having said that, I think it's probably gone too far and I think a little bit of protection of certain industries I'd sort of support, knowing that others will retaliate, there'll be a, a disadvantage, but I think we should be trying to work out which is the best advantage for our country. And what about foreign investment? So the, 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 well, I guess there's two things to look at, buying up the land, but also buying up the infrastructure, so the sugar mills. And yeah. the... Well, I'm very concerned about foreigners buying our land, especially when it's the Chinese Communist government that's doing it. I can't buy farming land in China. They're really astute. And I'll tell you what I'm concerned about. People say, oh, the, the foreign land is only 3 or 4%, but it's ownership. But it's the best 3 or 4 They take the best. And if you're not careful, I learned when I sold Dick Smith Electronics, I bought a number of commercial premises, which is where I now make my money. And within four or five years, people came along and offered me ridiculous prices for about a third of my commercial premises. So I sold them. But then I realised, hold on, I've sold the good ones and I've got the duds. And if we're not careful, we're going to sell everything good and delude ourselves that it's not a problem. We've only sold 10 or 15% to overseas. And then we realise it's the best. It's the ones you're going to make the money and grow the best food out of. So we've got to be careful. Generally, I 
I'm against selling to foreigners. My attitude is come and live here. If you're a wealthy Chinaman, Chinese make incredible, fantastic immigrants. If you're a wealthy Chinaman, if you've got a lot of money, come here and buy the property, but join the uh, the fire brigade and get your wife to join the uh, Country Women's Association, be part of our community and you're welcome, because this is a country of immigrants. And by the way, on my population side, just going back to that, People try and make out I'm against immigration. No, I'm pro-immigration, but at about 70,000 a year, not 200,000. It's, what it's what's made Australia a great, but borders are for self-interest. And my view is that if we have about 70,000, we're going to get the benefits of it without the disadvantages. So as we get closer to, to the end of this chat, can I ask you to channel your inner 34-year-old, Dick Smith, yeah. and uh, in addition to setting up that export company, if you were a family farmer, um, What's, would you look more to integrate, to get closer to the retailer? What sort of advice would you If have? I was a family farmer, I'd do exactly what I did when I was young. I'd buy the cheapest air ticket around the world, or maybe some of them can buy a business class ticket, I don't know, and I'd go and just copy the best from everyone else. See, my success has come from copying, asking advice and copying. Now, when you ask advice, you'll get a lot of wrong advice. You've got to use common sense to decide which is correct. But if I was a farmer or anyone on the land, I would buy that air ticket and then go and ask people advice. Drive along, drive into a farm and say, oh, you have, I'm a farmer from Australia, how do you do it? And everywhere you'll pick up an idea and that's what I did. And I just took the best ideas, brought them back to Australia before everyone else and made a fortune. And any farmer can do that. So that would be my advice. But it would be a space, I mean, it, there's optimism, isn't there? I mean, this fundamental question of feeding a global population, if any, for whatever the, the, you know, the obvious negatives are, there is opportunity there for Australian farmers to... to oh, look, I, I'm more positive about farming than anything else. I think our economic systems are crock because it requires perpetual growth in the use of resources, energy and population, and that's impossible. But I, if I was... I, I, if, if, if I had my time again, I would be in primary industry because even when, if we have an economic collapse, people still have to eat. They'll eat about the same, maybe a little bit less. And so anyone who's listening, who's on the land, stick to it. Um, I admire you for a start. I'm sort of one of these leeches who lives on the coast, as most of us do, sucking uh, the wealth out of the country in many ways. And I feel a bit guilty about it, even though I've done okay. I do have a farm down at Gundaroo. And for the last four or five years, we've been making money out of it. And because we actually looked around and asked advice and uh, sort of went away from trying to make money out of wool and 20 micron wool and moved into fattening and all the rest of it and we're getting a return. And so that's my message there. Ask advice, copy the success of others and of course farmers know this already, work damn hard. What a note to finish on. Dick Smith, thank you very much for joining us. Subscribe to the Food for Thought podcast by searching Food for Thought Australia in your podcast app or social media or go to our website, foodforthought.net.au.